I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Waiting for you in the next hour, it's a woman whose family members wrote for TV shows in four different decades. It's music from a band named after a character in a children's book that doesn't exist. And it's this novelist and public radio host who recently suggested a solution to America's divisive nature. Maybe America's like a bad marriage that can't be saved, and we should finally abandon the union and mutually secede. It's, it's, From the beautiful Aladdin Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire. Tonight, Where'd You Go, Bernadette author Maria Semple, Studio 360 host and True Believers author Kurt Anderson, and music from David Bazan. That's tonight on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hummeister, and you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole, who's going to watch the show and write a poem about everything he's learned during the course of the night. And of course, we have music from our house band led by Mr. Jim Brunberg. Thanks, Jim. We are coming to you for the second week from Wordstock, Portland's Festival of the Book. This town is so full of authors that we all have to really watch ourselves. A friend of mine split an infinitive at a sports bar last night, and she just got clocked by Maria Semple. She just <laughs> knocked him to the ground. It, she's like a literary superhero. So she'll be reading later, so look out. And Studio 360 host Kurt Anderson is here. He was that guy at the top of the show who suggested that we just might be so divisive as a country at this point that maybe we should just go ahead and split off into two countries. Now, it may seem like a slightly extreme solution, and the logistics might be a little bit of a headache, but I think we should give Kurt's idea some thought. Jonathan Haidt, a psychologist and the author of The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, he told Scientific American something that supports Kurt's idea of a deeply divided nation. He said that after Southern conservatives left the Democratic Party 30 years ago and the ensuing culture wars, we don't have two political parties anymore. We have two completely different cultures, not just with different moral codes, but with different definitions of morality and care and fairness and liberty. Conservatives and liberals divided exactly down party lines and not, not the fun kind of party lines where the hottest single ladies are waiting to talk to you. The bad kind of party lines where people never vote their conscience and impassioned Jimmy Stewart speeches fall on deaf ears. Height claims that it's partially because we've gotten used to a couple hundred thousand years of what he calls group versus group combat. So if we can't fight 200 centuries of de-evolution, why not just split off into two half countries? We could call one half Amersha, after the unfortunate typo in Mitt Romney's iPhone app earlier this year. It's just America, but with the C and the I swapped. It just said, a better Amersha. He may very well lead to a better Amersha. We don't know. 
But the other half would be called, of course, uh, New York commie liberal Muslimistan. Um, kind of, it's a mouthful, but it's probably not possible. It's probably not possible to be a commie and a Muslim at the same time, but we're not, we're not really concerned about facts anymore, are we? Facts are, you know, they're not, they're not really empirical pieces of information anymore. They're just kind of mushy, malleable things that we can all bend to our will. So immersia will be a utopia for the right. They'll pay a flat 3% tax rate. There will be Christmas trees in all government buildings year-round. And entitlement programs will shift to like an every man for himself, pray that your company has health insurance and a pension plan, which is totally kosher because praying at work is now a mandatory type program. And then New York commie liberal Muslimistan will be everything lefties ever dreamed of. There will be a set 60% tax rate, unions assuring teachers make as much as Kanye, and every Starbucks stocking the morning after pill in little blue packets at the milk sugar station. They're going to be very happy. But then we all know what would happen, right? Very quickly, the infrastructure in Amersha would fall apart with, without taxes funding it, and the population of New York commie liberal Muslimistan would start dying out due to unbridled birth control usage and the gay marrieds. <laughs> and the people of both countries would be utterly miserable because they'd spend all day liking each other's political Facebook posts, and neither would have anyone to blame when things went wrong. So I don't actually want any of that to happen. I would like this country to succeed. So I'll try, at least every once in a while, to do what Jonathan Haidt suggests in his book. To stop demonizing people who disagree with me. Try to see that they are just acting on what they believe is right in the same way that I am. Because it's really hard to collaborate with someone towards a common goal when you firmly believe that they've just leapt from the loins of Satan. You know, we tend to bring crosses and holy water to those discussions. Try bringing a pen and some spring water because it's really easy to get parched in hell. Our next guest was named one of the top 100 living songwriters by Pace Magazine. After heading up the popular Northwest bands Pedro the Lion and The Headphones, he went solo in 2006 and has since released two CDs and an EP. And he's played with folks like Rosie Thomas, Vic Chestnut, and Death Cab for Cuties' Ben Gibbard. This fall, however, Bazan is revisiting the past. In celebration of the 10th anniversary of Pedro the Lion's seminal album, Control, Bazan is touring the country and playing the entire record. Please welcome David Bazan to Livewire. Say it like I sing it 
introduce myself. I'm Joan Pepper and I'm a legal mediator and we are here in the divorce settlement dispute between John and Susan Ross. Uh-huh. How long is this going to take? Well, that all depends on you. Now, I see there is only one matter pending in this hearing. It regards a book. Is this so? Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, is this book an heirloom of some kind? <laughs> well, someday. Not likely. Look, my soon-to-be ex-wife wrote a slanderous and embarrassing tell-all book about our marriage. Oh, is this true, Mrs. Ross? No, not at all. It is a book of short stories. Oh, I have it here. Uh, Tales of Orion Nebula. Oh, they're science fiction stories. Mm-hmm. That's just what she wants you to think. But it doesn't take long to realize it's a thinly veiled portrait of our life. Of my life. <laughs> Mr. Ross, I've never heard heard of a science fiction memoir. Do you have any examples? Many. The main character in the first story, The Plagues of SETI Alpha 6, is called Captain Don Stupidface. <laughs> my name is John, and I know she's never liked my face. That's Don Stupid Face. It is a Terillian name, meaning weak-willed and pathetic. You see, the character of Don, if he had any character, is constantly given tremendous opportunities and then ruins them through stupidity and cowardice. Right. She writes that Don was afraid of space spiders and Don always forgets to flush the space toilet and Don was a big space idiot. She's just putting the word space before everything. Uh, Mr. Ross, there is a huge difference between a space spider and an earth spider. Thank <laughs> huge you. difference. How about in Crushers of Oba and the hideous soul-sucking alcoholic worm monster? Okay, um, I see that. It's called the Dread Deloria. That's my mother, Dolores. It's like she's not even trying. Oh, you know what? To be fair, both can suck the air out of room and both have a visible slime trail. Uh, mother... Uh, <laughs> 
Mother-in-laws are notoriously grisly. Mine's a Belgian. Okay. <laughs> Great. Here, she has a whole story about the time I tried to open a bar, which was my dream. Okay, that would be the story, um, Dreams of a Fool? Exactly. Uh, Mrs. Ross, what's the name of your husband's bar? The Salty Sailor. And what's the name of the bar in the story? The Salty Idiot Face Loser. <gasps> Ouch. Oh, that's a terrible name for a bar in outer space or otherwise. I can't believe you don't see what she's doing. What I am doing is I am taking the shards of nine wasted years and I'm turning them into tales of dynamic heroines triumphing over evil aliens whose sole mission is to keep them from opening up their space Bikram yoga slash slash gelato bars. It's not evil. It was a terrible business model. The gelato turned to soup. Oh, gelato soup. That sounds good. I can't believe what I'm hearing. It's all here. Descriptions of my body issues, my fear of pineapple, and the elderly. She's humiliating me. You humiliate you. Well, after I get some gelato soup, I'm going to read these stories and make my ruling. But I've got to tell you, Mr. Ross, I don't think this qualifies as a memoir. The closest she gets is probably uh, the impotence of intergalactic law and my husband. But that one sounds pretty good, actually. Oh, you'll love that one. I'm also writing a thriller about a beautiful and talented serial killer who marries a loser who loves naps, the Jay Giles band, and letting her down. You're listening to Livewire, and if you just tuned in, that is unfortunate because you missed David Bazan's rousing all-theremin version of Metallica's Enter Sandman. But there's still more to come. Stick around for Where'd You Go, Bernadette author Maria Semple, Studio 360 host Kurt Anderson, more from David Bazan and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Livewire. Maria Semple has screenwriting in her blood. Her father, Lorenzo Semple Jr., was a screenwriter who, among other things, wrote the pilot for Batman. After writing a few screenplays of her own that sold but didn't get made, Maria got a job writing for Beverly Hills 90210, and she went on to write for hugely successful comedy shows like Ellen, SNL, Mad About You, and Arrested Development, which garnered her nominations for an Emmy and Writers Guild Award. Not content with being ridiculously successful in just one writing genre, Maria wrote her first novel, This One Is Mine, in 2008, and has now written a second, Where'd You Go, Bernadette?, a witty, affecting, epistolary novel told in emails, faxes, police reports, and TED Talks. She's here tonight to read a letter from that book. Please welcome Maria Semple to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Maria. Thank you. <laughs> so I wanted uh, just briefly for you to talk a little bit about the structure of the book. It's oh, an yes, well, it's an epistolary novel, and it's a novel told in letters, and it's um, kind of put, the, the letters are put together by the daughter uh, of Bernadette Fox, who is a misanthropic, agoraphobic, woman who uh, moved from Los Angeles to Seattle and found she hated it and uh, blamed Seattle for all of her personal problems. Nice. <laughs> well, didn't, didn't you move from Los Angeles to Seattle? 
I did and blamed it for all of my personal problems. <laughs> Great. Well, do you want to set up the... Yes, so I'm reading a section from the middle of the book, which is uh, a letter that Bernadette writes to a colleague of hers back in Los Angeles. Uh, Bernadette had been a a very successful architect at one point. And this is a letter that she wrote to a friend back in Los Angeles explaining what she's been doing for the last 20 years and what it was like to move to Seattle. Paul, greetings from sunny Seattle, where women are gals, people are folks. When the sun comes out, it's never called sun, but always sunshine. Boyfriends and girlfriends are partners. Nobody swears, but someone occasionally might drop the F-bomb. And any request, reasonable or unreasonable, is met with no worries. Have I mentioned how much I hate it here? (laughs) Here we are in Seattle. First off, whoever laid out this city never met a four-way intersection. They didn't turn into a five-way intersection. They never met a two-way street. They didn't suddenly and for no reason turn into a one-way street. They never met a beautiful view. They didn't block with a 20-story old folks' home with zero architectural integrity. Wait, I think that's the first time the words architectural integrity have ever been used in a discussion of Seattle. The drivers here are horrible. And by horrible, I mean they don't realize I have someplace to be. They're the slowest drivers you ever saw. If someone is at a five-way stoplight and growing old while they're waiting for the lights to cycle through, and finally, finally, it's time to go, you know what they do? They start, then put on their brakes in the middle of the intersection. You're hoping they lost a half a sandwich under their seat and are digging for it, but no, they're just slowing down because, hey, It is an intersection. Sometimes these cars have Idaho plates, and I think, what the hell is a car from Idaho doing here? Then I remember, that's right, we neighbor Idaho. I've moved to a state that neighbors Idaho. (laughs) Seattle. I've never met a city so overrun with runaways, drug addicts, and bums. She's never been to Portland. (laughs) Pike Place Market, they're everywhere. Pioneer Square, teeming with them. The flagship Nordstrom, have to step over them on your way in. The first Starbucks, one of them hogging the milk counter because he's sprinkling free cinnamon on his head. Oh, and they all have pit bulls, many of them wearing handwritten signs with witticisms such as, I bet you a dollar you'll read this sign. (laughs) Why does every beggar have a pit bull? Really, you don't know? It's because they're badasses and don't you forget it. I was downtown early one morning and I noticed the streets were full of people pulling wheelie suitcases. And I thought, wow, here's a city full of go-getters. Then I realized, no, these are all homeless bums who have spent the night in doorways and are packing up before they get kicked out. Seattle is the only city where you step in shit and you pray, please God, let this be dog And don't get me started on Canadians. It's a whole thing. (laughs) Remember when the feds busted in on that Mormon polygamous cult in Texas a few years back? And the dozens of wives were paraded in front of the camera, and they all had this long mouse-colored hair with strands of gray, no hairstyle to speak of, no makeup, ashy skin, Frida Kahlo facial hair, and unflattering clothes. And on cue, the Oprah audience was shocked and horrified. Well, they've never been to Seattle. There are two hairstyles here, short gray hair and long gray hair. Let's play a game. I'll say a word, and you say the first word that pops into your head. Ready? Me, Seattle. 
you reign. What you've heard about the reign, it's all true. So you'd think it would become part of the fabric, but every time it rains and you have to interact with someone, here's what they'll say. Can you believe the weather? <laughs> and you want to say, actually, I can believe the weather. What I can't believe is that I'm having a conversation with you about the weather. My first trip up here to Seattle, the realtor picked me up at the airport to look at houses. The morning batch were all craftsmen, which is all they have here. If you don't count the rash of view-busting apartment buildings that appear in inexplicable clumps, as if the zoning chief was asleep at his desk during the 60s and 70s and turned architectural design over to the Soviets. <laughs> Everything else is craftsmen. Turn-of-the-century craftsmen, beautifully restored craftsmen, reinterpretation of craftsmen, need some love craftsmen, modern take on craftsmen. It's like a hypnotist put everyone from Seattle in a collective trance. You are getting sleepy. When you wake up, you will want only to live in a craftsman house. The year won't matter to you. All that will matter is that the walls be thick, the windows tiny, the rooms dark, the ceilings low, and it be poorly situated on the lot. Maria Semple. It's interesting because I, I love these books that are just filled with people's letters and papers. Are you sort of a voyeur in that way? In that I would love to um, sneak onto your computer and read all your emails? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, and anybody. Uh, I, yeah, I think that, that one of the um, fun parts about epistolary novels in general is that there is something that's kind of dirty about it, you know, yeah. that, that you are re reading people's private stuff. And so that's why the form really um, appeals to me. It, it just feels like you're doing something you're not allowed to do, which I think is a really thrilling experience for a reader. Yeah. But it also feels like there are court papers in the book, there are faxes. It feels like it would be hard at, at certain points. Like sometimes did you just feel like, oh, I just want to tell this story, I just want to narrate this instead of... Yes. But as much as I, I wanted to do that, I think that the joy of kind of figuring out in a devilish way how I was going to be able to put this piece of information across with some kind of strange document mm -hmm. was a lot more fun. And the challenge of it was r really pumping up. And, and so that's where a lot of the fun energy came was I really felt like so often I got myself into a corner and just thought, oh my gosh, I can't get out of it. I don't know how to do it, but I always kind of found a way and it was a real thrill. Yeah. Well, it was a, a wonderful letter. Um, I, I wanted to ask briefly, just because our entire staff are such gigantic Arrested Development fans, that show was so amazingly written. And um, just ask you, and I know every writer's room is different for every TV show, and I'm just wondering what you feel like the particular magic of that writer's room was. Mitch Hurwitz, who was our head writer, was completely insane. Um, and so that really helps in that he, you know, usually about 90% of the time uh, when you're in a, a writer's room, the, the writers are just sitting together and just cracking each other up and saying the meanest, darkest, most sexually inappropriate, racist <laughs> things to each other. And, and then at some point, someone is saying, hey, come on, we got to get back to the script. And, 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 and on, a, on Arrested Development, we would sit around and do that, and suddenly you'd look up, and, or Mitch would be at the typewriter saying, wait, Marie, what was that again? What was that like? And, and you go, oh my, wait, you're putting that in the show? And you didn't even intend it to go in the script. But it was like anything that was funny and crazy suddenly was in the script and it was there was just this reckless freedom yeah which was great what was the biggest lesson that you took as a as a writer from that writer's room well I learned not to care what any um network or studio executive had to say I mean to the point where um 
I feel like I could never go back to TV again because our contempt for them was so huge and it was so rude. And, yeah. and I felt like we had, I'd really become kind of a feral writer uh, from that experience. <laughs> yeah. That, that I just never could, could kind of have a pleasant interaction with a network or TV executive, sure. you know, or studio executive uh, from that. Because it was almost like this, there was this perverse fascination that we had with uh, writing scripts that nobody could follow. And, uh, and, and I remember, I think one of the many times the show got canceled, because they kept trying to cancel the show, and then we'd get nominated for Emmys, and then they go, oh man, we now can't cancel it, because, mm-hmm. you know, we've won all these awards, and we have to keep it on. And I remember once, I think that the, the head of Fox at the time was Peter, Peter Liguori, and he called the writer's room once when he had been at his, uh, at some party the night before, and had put his coat off on the in the bedroom, you know, to put his coats down and thought, oh, I'll switch to Fox to see what's on my network. And it was just two minutes of arrested development and he was so disgusted with how it was so incomprehensible and hard to follow that he just like tried to cancel the show the next day and Mm -hmm. then they couldn't because I think that really was when the Emmy nominations were announced. But yeah. Well, the book is Where'd You Go, Bernadette? The author is Maria Semple. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Excuse me. Shh. Oh, sorry. I was hoping that you could help me find a book. Yeah, I'd be happy to help. I'm a librarian. Right. Okay. Uh, So I need a book about gardening. Okay, well, due to budget cuts, we've had to sell off most of our gardening inventory. Oh, that's too bad. Mm -hmm. Do you have any books on starting organic tomato patches? Let me check. Okay, I have a pamphlet on eggplants. Wow. Okay, well, how about a book on just organic gardening in general? Your only other gardening option is a book called Sexual Gardening, A Late-Night Guide for Plowing the Fields, uh, written by a Dr. Leroy Confetti. Yeah, I I don't think that's going to work. Sorry. A budget cuts. Okay, let's just get off gardening. I have my fall reading list here. Do you have A Hundred Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez? Uh, okay, I actually have a paperback copy of that. Great! It's pages 50 to 75, and 132 to 166, and then the author's note at the end. Uh, do you, you don't have any complete copies? No. Budget cuts? Okay, uh, what about the help? The movie or the book? The book. Uh, no, don't have it. Budget cuts? Damn, okay, uh, well what about the, the movie? I have the first 25 minutes recorded from when it aired on Showtime. Uh, okay. Uh, on VHS. Oh. Sorry. Budget cuts. Never mind. Okay. Uh, what about Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises? You know, I'm afraid we really don't carry fiction anymore. No fiction? A budget cuts. That's insane. What good is a library if there's no fiction? Uh, we provide a public service, ma'am. We still have plenty to offer. Okay, well, do you have 1776 by David McCullough? No, budget cuts. Well, what about Seabiscuit? Don't think so anymore. A budget cuts. What to expect when you're expecting? A budget cut. A million little pieces? I read you all. Devil in the White City? I read you all. A brief Buh. history G- of time? <laughs> All right, you know what? Is there someone else here who can help me? Uh, hold on a second. Lorraine, is there anyone else here who can help this woman? No, very good, <laughs> Sorry, it's just us two. I wish you could. All right, how about you just tell me what you do have? Well, we have three copies of Elton John's autobiography. Two are in Korean, and one is our bathroom copy. Oh, you know what? Forget it. Just forget it. In fa- Where is the bathroom, by the way? Yeah, about that. Don't say it! <gasps> You're listening to Livewire Radio, brought to you in part by Ergo Depot, offering a comprehensive line of ergonomic work furniture. Their sit-stand desks help keep your blood flowing and your core involved while you power through all those YouTube videos of otters holding hands. Information from the healthy sitting experts can be found at ergodepot.com. So if there's such a thing as a renaissance man, Kurt Anderson would have to be it. He founded the Onion's more literary dad, Spy Magazine, in 1986. 
He was the editor of New York Magazine for two years. He hosts the Peabody Award-winning radio show Studio 360, and he's written three novels. Each of the novels take place in a different time in American history. Turn of the century at the beginning of the 21st century. Heyday describes what modern life looked like at the beginning of the 19th century. And now, his third novel, True Believers, tells the tale of an accomplished attorney in present-day America who takes herself out of the running for the U.S. Supreme Court because she has a shocking secret. The Los Angeles Times called True Believers a major historical work of lore and wisdom, irony and humor. Please welcome Kurt Anderson to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Kurt. Happy to be back, Courtney. Yeah, it's been... Five years. Five, wow, five years. Every five years, I promise to come back. <laughs> actually, we will hold you to that. So um, what we wanted to do tonight um, is actually perform a scene from your book um, using our acting troupe from The Book is True Believers. Um, and I was hoping that you could just sort of set up the scene for us. Yeah, this is maybe a third of the way into the book. The main character, Karen, whom you described, is this big deal American lawyer. She's 64 years old. She, has, she lives in Los Angeles. She's returned to New York where her daughter, son, son-in-law, and granddaughter live uh, because she's been persuaded by her granddaughter to chaperone her for her anarchist protest trip to Miami to protest a G20 summit. Meanwhile, she's having a family dinner, visiting her family. I think it's important to know uh, that her son-in-law is kind of insufferable, but perhaps that will become apparent uh, as we perform the bit. Uh, and her daughter, Greta, uh, is a neuroscientist. Excellent. Greta arrives home laden with plastic bags. I'd offered to spring for dinner out, but she was adamant about eating at home to have a real old-fashioned family dinner. So we are eating microwaved whole foods, sole amandine, and broccolini with garlic. During the meal, Waverly brings up the work in Greta's lab on visual processing, how fascinated she is by the fact that 10 billion bits of information reach the eye every second, but 99.9% .9 never gets to the brain. Seth comes alive. Machines kick our asses in so many ways. He saw The Matrix seven times the first two weeks it was in the theaters. It's like we're stuck in a permanent dial-up connection in here. He says, tapping his right temple. It's fucking insane. Jungo, my son-in-law, frowns, and I ask Greta if Waverly's statistic is correct. Oh, it's a lot worse than that. Our conscious visual perceptions are based on just a few hundred bits from those billions of bits of information the retina collects. The brain takes those few specks, this very, very rough sketch, this and then... This is why I find Greta's work more interesting than that of almost anyone else I know, including mine. So everything we're seeing, I ask, everything we're sure looks just so. The salt shaker, the piece of broccolini, it's all just a guess? Really? A, a prediction our brains are making? More or less, probably, yeah. Greta says, standing and taking her plate and Karen's away. And, and consciousness in general probably has a lot of features like that. It's not a bug. Seth shouts. It's a feature. We think we know why we think something, or why we feel a certain way, but our minds hide the mental processes from us that produce those thoughts and feelings. Some people think that could be the main point of our consciousness, hiding the processing states from ourselves. I find the point percent thing sort of beautiful. Of course you do. Glinda the good. Seth says to me. Every glass half full, even the cracked empty ones. Seeing silver linings is one of the family caricatures of me, along with working too hard and being a stickler for accuracy. Good old PMA. Jungo says, giving me a thumbs up. This stands for positive mental attitude, which he likes to think is one of the traits that the two of us share. Beautiful how, Grams? Because it means that simply in order to see, we've got to be like artists all the time, every waking moment, constantly taking those few dabs of information and using them to imagine this whole complex 
panoramic picture of reality. We're each the god of our own experience, the maker of all that is, seen and unseen. Greta and Jungo exchange a quick, weird look. Who wants apple crisp? It's sugar-free, Mom. Thanks, sweetie. I'm irritated by well-intentioned people who make special accommodations for my diabetes I've had since I was a kid. But they are trying to be nice, so I never say it annoys me. With a tiny scoop of vanilla, please. Over dessert, she resumes the brain conversation. There's this very senior guy at our lab who's convinced he's figured out the function of this entirely mysterious area of the brain, this area at the very top, V7, that we know is somehow connected to visual processing. He thinks it's semi-vestigial. He thinks it might be the part of the brain that allowed us, eons ago, to see energies and colors that we just don't see anymore. He thinks it's why people used to believe more easily in magic and angels and things. The cerebral seat of enchantment, he calls it. Is he probably right? He's got no data. It's more of a hunch. She pauses, then takes a deep breath. We worry he may be going a little loopy. (laughs) Kurt Anderson's True Believers. So what was your impetus to include the scene that we just did about this difference between how we actually see and what our mind creates for us? As it turned out, as I was writing the novel, I didn't begin with this idea, but it really became about memory and different versions of the same event and, and how we can't be sure of what we think we know. And in this case, uh, Karen knows some things she doesn't know, but then there are to quote Donald Rumsfeld, a lot of unknown unknowns as well as the known unknowns. (laughs) Exactly. And and so it is about memory and sort of fictionalization of our own past. She's a very interesting narrator. She's obviously, she's very intelligent. Um, But at the beginning of the book, she flat out says, I'm a reliable narrator, unusually reliable, trust me, which immediately made me not trust her as a narrator. Was that on purpose? Of course. Uh, uh, It was deliberate on my part, because she's a little like, all right already, stop saying you're reliable, over-insistent, but from her point of view, she is, she's, she wants to tell the absolute truth. Mm-hmm. And, and which a person in her position, she's this big, you know, famous Hillary Clinton, if she hadn't married Bill Clinton kind of person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, she, you know, she, 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 she wants this memoir that she's writing to be sort of shockingly candid. Yeah, truthful. What would you say, from the point of view of a writer, what would you say the benefit of of having your reader not really trust your narrator is? Well, it's the whole thing about having a first-person narrator, a a narrator who is the the, the star of the the piece. Uh, As a reader, you you should never trust a narrator. You should go in not trusting the narrator, and then he or she uh, either convinces you to, to, to trust her or, or not. Yeah. So much of this is about um, protest and protest in the 60s um, and because that's really that's when she was active. And just this past 4th of July, you actually wrote a controversial op-ed in the Times that said, thanks to the 60s, we're all shamelessly selfish. So we have a narrative, an accepted narrative of what the late 60s were all about. It was, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, yeah. to, to be concise. Uh, and I realized that what also part of the do your own thing uh, paradigm also led to, uh, you know, uh, private equity people doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. That, that the, the, the sort of selfishness that, you know, getting high and, and doing whatever you want in a, in a countercultural sense, yes, that's, that's a form of good selfishness, but what many people would regard as a bad selfishness also has its roots in the 1960s. Um, and and the, so, so the, the left and right just disagree on which kind of selfishness was good and which kind was bad. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also, you had tweeted uh, the quote that we had at the beginning yeah, of... Yeah, that was just... I, I was a little bummed out this last week. Uh, yeah, what actually was the impetus for you saying maybe it's just time for uh, us to split apart as a country? Know, just... Uh, I, I, I try to be upbeat, and most... Of, I'm, I'm sort of 51% optimistic, and, uh, but I was just... <laughs> I, I, uh, I follow a lot of uh, 
people with whom I disagree on Twitter, for instance, and cable news channels that, that drive me crazy just to be driven crazy. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, it was a day where I was just feeling, uh, it, you know, hopeless and as though there was no future for the American way of life. So oh. that's, that's the fun moment that inspired that uh, <laughs> yeah. idea. And, and, you know, around, uh, over the last few years, we've seen these, these joke maps of, a, of, you know, Canada plus the, the, the West Coast and the Northeast as a new country. Well, you know, it won't happen, but you can dream. Yeah. <laughs> the free health care would be lovely, wouldn't it? For starters, yeah. Mm -hmm. And a banking system that is still, uh, you know, that is properly regulated and, and, and didn't have a gigantic meltdown four years ago. Yeah, yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Livewire, and we're talking to Kurt Anderson uh, about his book, True Believers. I don't want to end on uh, you being bummed out about the country. I mean, you, you talked about... I'm not. About, that, was, you, that was a few days ago. <laughs> I'm fine now. Right, you're fine now. Yeah. But you talked about, um, you know, this book is a lot about protests then and protests now. You yeah. know, um, Karen takes her daughter to Occupy protests, or uh, Greta did. Um, do you have hope for, for the future in terms of, of protests and making, being able to, to change things in the same way that we have been in the past? Uh... Sure. I, I, I thought four years ago things had gotten bad enough and, 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 and crazy enough and scary enough in this country that we had reached a point where we could all come together as, as thoughtful, sober people putting our <laughs> ideologies behind us. Mm -hmm. I was mistaken. Yes. Uh, so well, it's interesting you should say sober because it sort of sounds like you're saying that you know, countries essentially have to hit rock bottom like alcoholics do in order to make a change. Something like that. Yeah. 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 Well, we, we so appreciate your joining us. The book is True Believers. The author is Kurt Anderson. Thank you so much for joining us. costumes. A tiny Shakespeare. Isn't that adorable? Thank you. And you, you're some kind of a zombie with an axe in your head? I'm Leon Trotsky. How very historic. Well, here's some candy for you, too. Thank, Thank you. you. Oh, and last but not least, hmm, are you a hobo? Go on, Riley. Tell the nice lady who you are. I don't wanna. Come on, Riley. Say what I told you. I am Obama's failed economic policies that have crippled the middle class. Damn right you are. Oh, okay, so that's why your pockets are turned out? I guess so. Oh, well, that's, um, yeah, here's your mini Mars bar. Thank you. Good job, Riley. Have a nice night. Oh, that was interesting. Oh, busy night. Rico three. Ooh, a vampire? Uh, no, I'm not a vampire. I'm, I'm Bain Capital in search of struggling companies I can suck from until bankruptcy and then sell for at a profit. Perfect, Devin. Just like we went over. Say thank you, son. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, boy. Jeez. Trick or treat! Oh, are you a Pokemon? No, she's not. Tell her who you are, Lucy. Lucy, I didn't work on that costume for a month for nothing. Inform this stranger of our political leanings right now. I am a bunny rabbit representing the softening of America's economic might in the global marketplace due to Obama's socialist tendencies. And she seems really excited about it. Just give her the candy, Kami. We've got five more blocks to hit. Well, here you go, sweetheart. Sorry about your dad. Thank you. Gary, this is the last year we do Halloween. Great. Trick or treat! Oh, perfect. Let me guess, you're representing the Koch brothers' involvement in legislation by the oversaturation of political lobbyists. Oh, no, maybe you're Carl Rove's insidious puppetry of the presidency. I'm a cloud! <laughs> Jeez. Come on, Stella. Let's get out of here. Jeez, lady, what is the matter with you? You're even worse than the dentist down the block that gives out toothbrushes. Guess what, Gary? You are having a vasectomy. That was Trisha Ferguson, Sean McGrath, and Paul Glazier.
Tonight's show is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market and the Whole Planet Foundation, hoping to help a million more people in global communities to change their own lives through grants to microfinance institutions. More information can be found at wholeplanetfoundation.org. Feed your brain at Whole Foods Market. We'll be right back. people and their needs and the earth and things, we are going to answer our burning listener questions. Science, pop culture, religion, the vegan scramble you had for dinner last night. We know. We know everything. Tonight we have a mix of questions, some from Twitter, some from our Facebook page, and some from the audience in the theater. And those questions will be answered honestly and almost accurately by our cast and guests in a segment we like to call Dear Livewire. Anonymous asks, how tall is tall enough? I'm glad you asked, because there's been a lot of speculation surrounding this topic in the media lately, and through an unprecedented application and adaptation of the CERN particle accelerator, the answer has surfaced finally and has blown the minds of the scientific world at large. But modern science has come back with the answer, the age-old riddle, and it is, yay high. Thank Thank you. you, Paul. Kurt Anderson, you have an audience question. Cindy asks, how can I stop the sun from setting earlier? Well, Cindy, there are three ways, and these are they in ascending order of difficulty. One, get up a little earlier every day, and it will seem as though the sun is setting uh, later. Number two, right now, move to Buenos Aires. The seasons are entirely different. It's almost summer there. Number three, move to Venus. The days are 243 days long. Excellent answer, Kurt Anderson. Good job on Dear Livewire. As usual, Dear Livewire was brought to you tonight by New Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring their seasonal red ale, Red Hoptober. A beer may not seem like the 1991 espionage blockbuster, but they have a lot in common. It's a deep, autumny red like the Russian flag, and it's sharp and punchy like a young Alec Baldwin, yet sophisticated like Sean Connery's accent. A complete dossier on this and other non-submarine-themed beers can be found at newbelgium.com. Once again, David Bazan. you think that it won't grow back in a day or two husbands in winter we know the truth but what can we do I don't
at the beginning of the show, our house poet Scott Poole has been watching everything like a hawk or some less predatory bird. And he is here to tell us some very, very important information that he has gleaned over that hour. Please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I learned tonight by Scott Poole. I learned tonight that if I put the word space in front of everything, then I might be able to finally write the space novel and not just poems. But if I think if I actually just set extra spaces in front of each time I use the word space, then the artistic use of kerning might not only get me a popular novel, but finally draw the special attention of critics that must all live in Los Angeles Critics who never have to live with the rain and bums in bordering states like Idaho. This has to throw off your critical judgment. I'm sorry if you spend the day looking at splintered sunlight through a palm tree while sipping a martini in a restaurant converted from an art deco garage station, then you're not going to appreciate the subtle nuance of, I just spent five hours space power spraying the space moss off my space driveway until my space fingers split from too much space water. A bit of kerning has to help you in these situations. Thinking about these critics, now I realize that I don't want to write space in front of every noun. I want to write F-bomb in front of every noun. I want to use it so much that the scene describing me power spraying my driveway will be mistaken for erotica. (laughs) Northwest erotica, perhaps. That could be good. Just because Sasquatch may or may not exist doesn't mean we can't make a few F-bomb robot versions of them and set them loose in the F-bomb woods, looking like Harry Brad Pitts and Jessica Alba's to test the eyes and F-bomb V7 sections of sullen hoodie helmeted F-bomb ready to succeed Seattleites. <laughs> Instead of the runaway hit Shades of Grey, think levels of hairiness. It could be big. Thank you. Scott Poole, that's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Maria Semple, Kurt Anderson, and David Bazan. Our house band is Jim Brunberg, Dave Jorgensen, and Paul Evans. Tonight's show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Paul Glazier and Trisha Ferguson, and director Jason Rouse. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, Scott Poole, Ben Coleman, and Dylan McConus. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with House Sound by Paul O'Brien. Stage management by Mark Bauck. Special thanks to Rose City Sound. Lighting by Rhiannon Betts. Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Vondrele. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. Special thanks tonight go to Katie Merritt, Nancy Ellis, and all of our friends at Wordstock Festival. Find them at bewordstock.org. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, 
visit LiveWireRadio.org or find us on Twitter and Facebook at LiveWire Radio. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of LiveWire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the LiveWire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are LiveWire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about LiveWire. And thank you.